any of us can change our lives through changing our brain. And one of the ways that we can do that is through meditation and energy work. So tune in so that you can learn how to retrain your brain through a variety of different mindfulness and energy-based practices. All right. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the NeuroFlex podcast, formerly known as the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. This is actually the first episode in which we've transitioned our name um, to the NeuroFlex podcast. So welcome to the show. Um, today we have a very special guest, uh, Lisa Erickson. She is an energy worker and meditation teacher. She's the author of Art and Science of Meditation and Chakra Empowerment for Women. So Lisa, super excited to have you on the show today. I'm glad to be here. And I love the new name, NeuroFlex. I think that speaks to a lot of things we'll probably talk about. So that's great. <laughs> I, thank you. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So tell me a little bit about your, just your journey into this whole world of meditation and spirituality and energy work. How did you originally get into it? Well, my introduction to meditation was in college over 30 years ago, and it started like it does for many people as a stress management technique, which at that time it wasn't as well known, but I was experiencing headaches, stomach aches, actually just after college. And um, it's like kind of unusual at the time a doctor suggested after medical tests were not turning anything up <laughs> that perhaps it was stress-based and to consider meditation. As it happened, the class that I happened to find was a chakra or energy-based meditation. There are many kinds of meditation. That's the one that I found. I've since studied other forms of meditation as well, but that's what really began my journey both into meditation in general and into this idea that we have an energy body, which we can access through meditation and through other means. And that both of these things can play a powerful role in stress management and personal change and in spiritual seeking. And I would say my journey went through all of those phases. It started out as health-based and gradually transformed into personal growth, spirituality, and now the work that I do. Awesome. And yeah, tell me a little more about what you are doing in, in this space in terms of the energy work and, and meditation and just what, what is your kind of day-to-day -day job per se? Yeah, well, I work with people both one-on-one -on -one and in workshops around, both, and, and I use a few different modalities. I use mindfulness-based meditation, which is more breath-based. I use somatic forms of contemplation where we're tuning into energies in the body. And I use chakra or energy center meditation and guided work. And I use another technique too called feeding your demons, which is a, based on Tibetan Buddhism, but is a secularized archetype, working with archetypes type process. So I have this skill, these groups of tools, and they're all based on connecting to emotions or thoughts that are problematic for us. They might be trauma-based, they might be limiting pa uh, patterns or, or emotional patterns that we think are holding us back. It could even be physical pain related to a medical issue. And these different techniques all help us to identify with them in a different way, or in fact, detach from them in a different way. So we can release them, transform them, rewrite them. So that's kind of what I'm doing with each individual or in my workshops is exploring it from one of the angles, whichever one works. Awesome. And can you give kind of a, like a brief breakdown of each of those four different angles that you mentioned? Yeah. So mindfulness meditation is really the meditation form that has become the most well-known 
really it's taught in this point in hospitals and schools in many different settings. And the basics are either focusing on the breath or counting, and it's pulling your mind back over and over. It's what most of us consider to be meditation, some sort of formal practice where you're tuning into the present moment, what's currently present in your mind or in your body, and you're trying to bring your mind back from it over and over, back from the chatter, back from what you might consider to be distraction, tuning into this level of self-awareness. So that, that, and that has all sorts of benefits, right? And really I would say that of all the techniques, that is the foundation of all meditation, that you're pulling your mind back and you're strengthening the part of your mind that can do that, <laughs> that can, you, know, you start thinking about, you're supposed to be reading your book. You start thinking about what you're gonna make for dinner. And there's that part of your mind that goes, I'm supposed to be reading my book, right? You can strengthen that part of your brain through mindfulness-based practices. How that translates then into your life is that when you're feeling strong emotions, you can train yourself to be able to go, oh, wait, stop. I'm feeling angry right now. How do I want to respond to this? As opposed to just reacting, you can choose your response rather than reaction, right? Even in the case of physical pain, you be can begin to say, oh, okay, I'm feeling pain. I'm going to breathe and relax instead of tensing, which is the survival response. And if I breathe and relax, my experience of that pain may actually diminish. So that's really the mindfulness piece. Then I, I don't know if you want to stop there or should I just keep going? Well, I, I was just going to comment on that last yeah. part where you said about the pain. I mean, I think that's so important when, you know, when it comes to like just understanding for people that like, you know, opioids, the, the biggest painkillers, it's like, that's not directly acting on, if you have a knee injury, that's not directly doing anything to heal your knee. You know, the reason those things work, obviously it causes tons of side effects and addiction, all sorts of bad stuff. But the reason they are so um, effective is because they kind of blunt the, the brain's processing of that pain. So in the, it sounds kind of like a similar mechanism and some of the neurotechnologies I work with are able to do similar things in terms of quieting down some of the networks in the brain that are really involved in, in processing pain. But I've read that that mindfulness and meditation can absolutely do the, the same stuff as you're alluding to. Yeah. And it takes time. I mean, you are reprogramming your brain, right? So it's like going to the gym. You don't do 10 pushups and your biceps are bigger, right? You, to, to reprogram your brain in this way, it needs, it does require repetition and some commitment, but it, we've done brain studies that show that it absolutely does happen. Uh, and you can change your relationship to pain and emotional discomfort. And I work with a lot of trauma survivors. So where this is very helpful is what role this can play in rewriting the triggers that get developed from traumatic experiences, right? Uh, it takes a lot of work, but you can begin to develop that kind of detachment from that activated experience, right, from trauma. If your trauma was a car accident, and now every time you hear a loud noise, you freeze and it causes a whole stress response within your body, you can learn to reprogram your response. And it's really about getting gradually expanding what's called your window of tolerance, getting what is currently perceived as intolerable to be just slightly uncomfortable, and then gradually comfortable. And you're doing that over time, which is the same thing you're doing with the experience of pain or with emotional discomfort if you're working with things. 
or even thought patterns that you have. If you have this constant tape running in your head, you can't do this, you're dumb, you're dumb, you know, because you grew up with dyslexia, no one figured it out. So you receive this message. You can gradually learn to be with that thought and let it go and begin to rewrite that. So meditation is the foundation really for all of those types of change. And you mentioned how it how it takes time. And I think it's important for people to have like reasonable expectations. I experienced that a lot in the work that I do, you know, with using different neurotechnologies to change the brain. And, you know, it's a process I explain to people. It's just like going to the gym. You're not going to lift really heavy weights one day and then wake up, you know, with huge muscles the next day. It's, it's a process. And I think training the brain is also a process. But the question that I had for you is, you know, and, and specifically maybe with the, the patients or clientele that you work with, say a lot of the, the trauma, um, you know, PTSD sort of crowd, maybe, you know, how long do you start seeing that people are starting to experience benefits in handling their symptoms or managing, you know, their, their emotions uh, after they're starting to incorporate mindfulness? Yeah. Well, of course, I'm going to give the answer that you probably give a lot too, which is it depends. <laughs> it oh, yeah. depends on what yeah. we're dealing with <laughs> and, you know, how much time the person can devote to it, et cetera. But, you know, turning to uh, a lot of the studies, I think one of the marker that's commonly used with mindfulness meditation in particular is if someone is able to practice for 20 minutes a day for eight weeks, they can begin to measure the actual change in the brain. Now, if you meditate three times a week instead of, uh, every day, then, you know, okay, you're going to three times that long, right? It's sort of like it, it, the, the amount of or the frequency of the repetition is directly, directly relative to how quickly you'll see the results, but you will still see results. So three times a week, someone will still see results, but it takes longer, right? So it really just like with physical body, I mean, the brain is operating under the same <laughs> time span, right? The, the amount of repetition and, and time you can give to it. Although it isn't always that more is better, just like with physical exercise. So it is finding that sweet spot. 20 minutes seems to be a good starting point for many people. Now, uh, energy work, chakra-based work, which is based on ancient teachings around us having an energy body, they are in those teachings called the fast path because there, there are a lot of teachings that, that posit that our energy body connects to our endocrine system and our nervous system, and that by accessing it, you can speed up some of these results. And I certainly believe that's true. That's getting out there into the mystical realm, but that is, that is sort of uh, one of the teachings behind energy teachings. And how would you, just for the listeners, like how would you define you know, chakra work or, or just the energy system in general? Yeah, I really would say it's an anatomy. We have an energy or subtle anatomy, just like we have a physical anatomy. Uh, it cannot be seen by the physical eyes. Uh, and so it has been mapped differently by different cultures over time. And some of those mappings developed from medical traditions, right? Uh, ancient medical traditions, others developed from spiritual traditions. And those different purposes resulted in different mappings. So that can be confusing for people and invalidating for people. For me, it's sort of validating to really discover there have been subtle body mappings from all around the world. And there are remarkable similarities. All of them place some major energy centers or what you might think of as organs in the energy body, what we now mostly call chakras, although that is specifically a Sanskrit word. It's not a universal word. 
uh, along uh, parallel to the spine in the core of the body, right? And they are linked in various systems. Each one is linked to different glands and they also correspond to our nervous system, which of course runs right up our spine. So that is the connection that we have this subtle anatomy that intersects with our physical body, but then also intersects with our psyche, you could say, and with spirit, if you believe in something beyond the body. And then tell me a little about what can go wrong with these different chakra or energy systems and what might be causing that that dysregulation to occur. I would just pause it before you even answer that, that I would think trauma would be a big thing that would alter that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, each of, we'll talk about say the seven chakra system, which is the one that's become the most well-known, these seven chakras from root to crown. And each relates to a different physical part of your body, but also different psychological uh, aspects. So like the root chakra at the tailbone is linked to our adrenals and our bone structures, our legs, but then it's also linked to uh, our ability to sort of feel safe and present. So if we're in fight or flight all the time, if we are in certain states that are associated with having experienced a lot of trauma, constant state of hypervigilance, for example, we're not sort of grounded in our root chakra. It's considered either weak or we're not, you know, it could be considered obstructed. So that's one way to look at it. And it's true for all of the various chakras. They each link to a different psychological aspect and it could be blocked, it could be weakened. Then in general, there's another level of the subtle body that is said to hold our self-beliefs and all of our conditioning, both our personal conditioning about who we are, what we're capable of, and our cultural conditioning. So there's these different levels of it that are running in there that define our perception of reality and ourselves and our capacity. That is also stored at that energy body level. So you can also work with those and they may, those self-beliefs may weaken or strengthen different parts of our energy body, different chakras. And then that from a holistic perspective, links into those body parts, right? So someone who is um, weaker in that root chakra, as I just mentioned, may have adrenal issues, may have fatigue issues, uh, these kinds of things, may have immune system issues also linked to the root chakra, all of which we do know there is a higher prevalence of in trauma survivors. So that's sort of the, the way that's all linked in. Okay. And I know there's, there's some different techniques or different... Um... Uh, I don't know, practices uh, that are designed to uh, you know, work on opening or clearing the chakras, you know, what, what's your take on the different ways of going about healing them? Yeah, I think it's very individual. I, there are, you know, the more popular methods out there are things like crystals and incenses and smells because the chakras are linked to parts of our body. So there's all these mappings too which scents or which crystals uh, activate the energies of particular chakras. And that's a lot of fun to work with. And I won't say it doesn't work. I think it does work. I think there's limits for most of us as to how much of a shift you'll get from that, but it is a lot of fun. I think the more powerful techniques are uh, meditation techniques where you are learning to tune in to a certain part of your body tied to a chakra and activate that. There are usually visuals associated with that. There may be mantras associated with that. So it essentially is meditation, but instead of focusing on your breath, you may be focusing on a visual or a sound that's associated with activating a particular chakra. Then of course there's energy healers who 
uh, direct energy into you. This is what Reiki is about. And that may activate or clear obstructions in your energy body. So it's like you're getting help from the outside with your own chakras. Awesome. Okay. So those, so have we covered now two, we've covered the mindfulness and we've covered energy healing. What were, remind me the last two pillars that we yeah. have yet to discuss. Somatic uh, healing somatic. and then this project, uh, a process called Feeding Your Demons. Yeah, somatic work. And this is a broad range in trauma work in particular. This has really become the focus of most trauma healing. What we're realizing is that trauma is held in the body to some extent. And uh, so many trauma survivors experience some level of disassociation from the body. It's like that fight, flight, or freeze response. They all, to some extent, take us, take over our body in some way, or give us this feeling of we don't have control of our response, our body. So, so much trauma work now is about trying to feel what causes that response and retraining your body to feel as if, no, I can stay present with this, right? Maybe you grew up in an abusive home. And so anytime there is conflict or loud voices, you freeze, you literally can't respond, you can't speak, right? And it's this pattern. And so you're working over time to feel what is that freeze response like in my body? How do I breathe and reprogram and uh, train myself to become capable of staying present in that moment, then being capable of speaking in that moment, and then gradually being capable of really speaking what I need to say, even if it's conflict, right? So that's a basic example, but it's really about feeling from my perspective, energies in the body. You know, when we say, oh, I, I was frozen, what does that mean? Yes, there is a neurochemical response going on in our body related to the stress response and the adrenals and cortisol and all of this stuff, but we experience it more as like an energy almost holding us, right? So for a lot of people learning to work with that energy somatically, like maybe you experience it as if it's a rope wrapped around you, then you're going to visualize that rope becoming un <laughs> unwrapped around you as you breathe, right? You're going to experience, you're going to experiment with physical mobility, moving your arms, et cetera, as a way of breaking that cycle that has kicked in. So that's what I mean by somatic and body-based work, which to me is very closely linked. Well, they're all linked to each other. The mindfulness and the and the energy work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that idea of getting back in touch with the sensations of the body. I mean, I think that maybe to a lot of people not already involved in this, it's, it seems so foreign. I mean, it did to me just coming from like a very sciencey, you know, kind of background, you know, cognitive, just always thinking in my head, you know, and it's like, I think it is difficult at, you know, when you first try to tune into you know, all these things that are already going on in your body, but it's seems to be pretty easy to ignore most of the time if you're not actually tuned into it. That's exactly right. And what's so amazing is how often trauma survivors are disassociated from their body. And it was, you know, I work with a lot of sexual trauma survivors or a lot of childhood abuse survivors. So in that case, it really was kind of the flight response to survive a, abusive episodes. Flight in this case, not being running away, but escaping in the mind, right? And then that becomes a habit in any uncomfortable situation as an adult, just kind of going away, checking out, right? In, in one way or another. The worst, the worst or the most destructive of those can be addiction, right? But there can be a lot of other ways that we sort of just escape reality or avoid uh, even someone right in front of us, just checking out, ignoring what they're saying, whatever it is, 
So yeah, really then getting into in tune with, oh, okay, before I checked out what happened and being able to feel that it happens so fast going into the survival response, being able to slow it down and be like, oh, that person said something that made me hurt my feelings, made me feel threatened in some way. And I checked out, right? But I can just be with that emotion. Where do I feel that hurt or that feeling of fear and anxiety in my body? What is it like? Is it uh, butterflies in my stomach? Does it feel like a big red blob in my heart? You know, there's, there's different ways of working with that. And once you do that, you have the opportunity to then try to try to change it. And um, it's interesting to me, all the physical health issues that often accompany uh, individuals that have experienced childhood abuse. We know there's such a higher uh, rate of many mental and physical health issues. And I think a lot of it is tied to some extent to actually missing symptoms, right? Actually missing what's going wrong in the body because someone is not tuned in to things in the body that are happening. Interesting. So by not being able to tune in that you might not be able to like observe those symptoms as they were occurring. So things could potentially just build up to a serious illness or disorder that you might realize later on. Is that kind of exactly. correct? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I have known in survivors of sexual trauma, for example, who, you know, really would not notice the signs of say a bladder infection until it was really, really bad. Right. Whereas for most individuals, that's actually pretty painful or uncomfortable early on, and you would catch it early on, but they were disconnected from their body to some extent. And any uh, discomfort had become a way, you know, they would disconnect from it, right? And as you already have discussed, our perception of pain is in the body. So we can train our body almost to disconnect from it, but our pain in our body is sometimes a message we need to be able to tune into. So it kind of can go both ways. Some people need to be able to tune in more and some people need to be able to detach from pain in order to relax rather than tensing up in it. And, and that's something you're working. And this, I would say it's exactly the same for emotional pain. It's exactly the same. Got it. Now let's move on to tell me about the, the inner demon sort of work. Yeah. Well, this process is called Feeding Your Demons. And it was developed by an American teacher in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, Lama Soltamalioni, although uh, many uh, therapists helped her develop it. It's been around for a long time and she has her own book on that. But I'm a facilitator in this of this process. And it's really very similar to sort of, if anyone's familiar with Jungian archetypes, Carl Jung and archetypes of the psyche, it's working with that idea to some extent, but we start first in the body. So to me, that's how it ties into this somatic work and the energy work. If you're having a, say a, you have a difficult pattern or a difficult emotion you're dealing with, you're feeling a lot of anger. For example, you might tune into where do I feel that anger in my body and try to describe it as an energy. And then you're guided through a process of externalizing it. And instead of trying to fight it, you actually ask it what it needs and imagine that you're giving it what it needs because we're so conditioned to fight with the parts of ourselves that are causing us problems. And then this is, this is an act of compassion and then it transforms into an ally, basically a representation of wisdom within yourself. And you ask that uh, personification of your wisdom, what, you know, what do I need to do? How can you help me, right? What, what do I need to do? So it is this archetypal way of working with different aspects of your psyche, often bringing them outside of ourself in this way is a powerful mental tool, right? For um, 
drawing forth parts of ourselves that parts of our mind that that we haven't been able to access any other way it's a very powerful tool in that way okay and and what's kind of like the process of integrating all of these different kind of four modalities like into your work yeah, my foundation is really the chakra work, but from there, it's going to be based on some what what someone is comfortable with, right? Someone uh, someone who's very visual. There's some people who are very visual, so the feeding your demons is excellent for them right off the bat. Other people are coming to me because they already are familiar with the chakras and they really just want to go straight there. Mindfulness is the basis for anyone. Uh, there are some individuals though where mindfulness practice is can actually the stillness of that or the lack of stimulation can actually create more discomfort or anxiety. For example, someone who's ADHD or someone who's part of their trauma response is to always be busy. You ask them to get engaged in mindfulness meditation and they actually start feeling trapped or it starts uh, creating anxiety. So in that case, not the right modality for them. They need something more active like the chakra work or the feeding your demons. For other people, that grounding, that basic grounding of breath-based mindfulness, they need some time with that to develop this, uh, you know, self-awareness part of the brain. So it's really going to depend on the individual. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how that, that so much parallels my own work of just utilizing different technologies for different people, different electrode placements at different areas of the brain, you know, depending on each person's unique neurophysiology. And it, it really, you do have to kind of find what works for what works for someone might actually make someone else might actually hurt someone else's symptoms and vice versa. Um, so yeah, that, that's interesting that you notice those parallels in your own work too. Yeah, it's really a process of experimentation and collaboration. I also work with an organization called the Breathe Network, which is all about trauma sensitivity within uh, alternative healing modalities, right? It's like, how do you work in a trauma sensitive way? And one of the foundation tenets is it needs to be collaborative. You need to be asking, right? And that can be a problem with our traditional medical system that it is perceived as here's the expert, tell your symptoms, I'll tell you what you need, right? But it's really a lot more complex than that, especially when there's mental health involved, right? And there needs to be a lot of dialogue and experimentation. And especially for a trauma survivor, that's really important, especially if they experienced abuse at the hands of someone who was supposed to be an authority figure, right? So you're really going to have to create an environment where they feel comfortable sharing. And you're really getting real information, not just what they think you want to hear in order to stay safe, right? So otherwise it's hard to get a true picture of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is that something that, um, that most clients that you start working with, is there some amount of resistance to kind of like opening up on some level and you have to kind of partner with them to figure out how to ease that discomfort? Yeah, I think uh, some people are more resistant than others, but no matter what, there's a certain level of trust that needs to be established over time. And it's really important for trauma survivors and well, really, I think anyone doing emotional work to feel safe. And so how do you make someone feel safe? You really have to, what makes any of us feel safe? You have to feel as if, if something is uncomfortable for you or you don't like it, that you can speak up 
right? That's number one. So that environment needs to be there right away that, okay, if this isn't working for you, we're going to try something else. So please speak up and that you're honest, like, okay, this procedure, you know, this, this process we're going to go through, it, sometimes it activates some uncomfortable emotions. And I just want you to be ready for that. It may or may not happen. If it does and you want to stop, you let me know. We'll work with something else, right? And there just always has to be that feeling so that over a few sessions, they have this feeling of, oh, I can really trust this person. And then that's when the real work usually begins, you know? Awesome. Okay. Now, I wanted to ask you about something that I saw um, just in your background information about you created a, a daily um course called awakening your feminine chakras Can you tell me a little about just what that course is and why why you decided to create that I do a lot of work with women's energetics and that's one of my older courses I now teach a lot of live courses on my website as well uh, enlightened energetics but I focus a lot on there are in subtle body mappings different mappings based on male, female, biological sex, and also in some cases, gender identity, which in this day and age are not always the same. So uh, there are different mappings that people might relate to. And it mostly has to do, as you can imagine, with the chakras in the lower body that are linked to the physical reproductive system. And uh, because the chakras are linked to the endocrine system and our hormones are part of that, all of that plays into it, right? And then we also experience different life passages in terms of pregnancy and perimenopause. And there are energy teachings around all of that, both from a physical perspective and from a spiritual perspective, right? So I think that is what I teach in a lot of my women's workshops is specific energy body teachings and visualizations and tools related to women's life transits and to these differences in a woman's subtle body. And are there any like popular or one like chakras that are commonly blocked in women versus different ones that are commonly blocked in men? Or is that not a accurate way of looking at it? Yeah, there are uh, patterns that are prominent, never absolute, right? But in general, uh, the way that we are conditioned right now, and it's sort of a chicken and egg thing, which I think it also is with the brain and many other things, you know, what's nature, what's nurture, what will change over time. But in general, I, you know, we find the sacral chakra is linked to emotions. And so you'll often find in men that the emotional expression has shut down. And the, because that chakra is also linked to fluidity, that men's energy bodies are a lot more rigid. So when it comes to personal change, often what needs to first be worked on from an energy perspective with a lot of men is fluidity and openness, breaking down that rigidity, bringing in more energetic fluidity. Whereas for women, it's often boundaries. Women are often still conditioned around people pleasing, around relationships being primary, being, making everyone around them happy or like them. Obviously I'm stereotyping a lot, but these are some core gender conditioning that reflects energetically as sort of constantly reaching out to everyone's energy and then sort of taking on other people's energies or uh, modifying oneself to please the people around you unconsciously. And so then we need to work actually on energetic boundaries. You could say less fluidity in the sense of swinging with other people's emotions. So that's you know very stereotypical, but definitely a pattern that, that I see. And then maybe we could discuss with those patterns kind of what you would do to go about kind of uh, say like starting for, for men, kind of the lack of fluidity, um, the inability to maybe open up and share emotions or whatever. What, 
how would you go about dealing with that? Is there a specific chakra or loca uh, location in the body where you would primarily focus on or? Yeah, so from a chakra perspective, if the individual's open to working with that, we're usually going to do a lot of work with the heart chakra, which, as you can imagine, has a lot to do with vulnerability and emotional openness. And then we're going to work with flow. So I'm often going to have a, a man focusing on moving through all the chakras, one after the other, not just uh, on one, so that we're getting this energetic fluidity. If someone is not quite open to chakra work, I may actually recommend different ways of bringing about physical fluidity first. So qigong or yoga or dance, if someone's open to that, different ways of getting physical fluidity going because that has an energetic impact. And then, you know, for women, same thing, I would focus on the navel and the root chakra. Those are, that's the navel and the tailbone chakras. And those really have to do with boundaries. They're usually very strong in, in, in men. Uh, and uh, that sense of, you know, solidity that way or, and in their daily life, uh, focusing on emotional boundaries, asserting boundaries and in, in possibly physical activity as well that supports that. Awesome. And then moving on to uh, working with women, uh, the common complaints or common issues that you mentioned being the kind of taking on too many people's energies and having a difficulty time setting appropriate boundaries. How, are, how is your work going to then change when, uh, when it comes to women? Yeah, so that's that root and navel chakra. That would really help. And we often do a lot of work also. I do something like imagine, a lot of visualizations around imagining uh, kind of a bubble around you that you are can sense other people's emotions, but not take them in. Another one is working with the fire element in the belly, imagining it's burning up any emotions you've picked up from other people. I do work with everyone with a lot of affirmations. I do like affirmations in terms of saying, I have a right to boundaries and practicing that. Um, and then I think with working with affirmations, I like to have the real point of affirmations is not the statements. It's actually trying to practice feeling that as true. What does it feel like in your body to be walking around in the world with boundaries for a man? What does it feel like to be walking around open and fluid, right? <laughs> and vulnerable. And, and really that, so you would affirm these things and you're practicing in the safety of your home or our session. What does that feel like in my body? to be in this way in the world very versus my usual default. You know, and in the end it gets into neuroplasticity and all this stuff that you're working with as well. You're trying to practice a new state in a safe container so that eventually over time it can become a new default. That is takes repetition in time, but that's the goal. Definitely. So okay, that's that's an interesting kind of paradigm shift of rather than just simply repeating like a mantra just for the the words or an affirmation just to hear the words it's more so focusing on the felt sense that you you're getting from those words. Yeah, exactly. I think that's so important. It's really the point because then you're probably, you know, if you're getting, if you're trying to affirm kind of a relaxed state or something, you're really noting, really what's happening is endorphins are probably releasing their stuff going on chemically, but you're going for yourself. Oh, wow. I'm so, I'm so relaxed. My body feels relaxed. My shoulders are down. I feel like a warm flush in my chest, or, you know, I have a little smile on my face. You're noticing for yourself physically what happens. 
And then once you really know that, it's like you can create what I call a snapshot memory, which once you've practiced it enough, you'll eventually be able to remember that and shift into that state when you need to. That's the idea, right? Then it has, it's really taken somewhere in your brain, right? Where you can trigger a whole response. Awesome. Well, Lisa, what, um, you know, when you kind of like look, I look ahead in terms of just your, your own work and, you know, what just the future, I guess, of energy healing and all of this sort of mindfulness work, like, what do you see kind of in your future career going forward along with just, you know, it seems like people are becoming like more and more receptive to this stuff, at least in the, the Western world. Like it seemed like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, like yoga and mindfulness were still kind of like fringe topics. And now, you know, everyone is, is talking about them, if not doing them. So, you know, what do you, what do you kind of see like going forward in the next several years? Well, I think people are suffering, right? And I mean, I have three teenagers, so I'm very tuned into a lot of what is going on with our youth, especially coming out of COVID. I mean, our mental health struggles are very extreme, right? And um, so I do think people are looking for solutions. They're looking for antidotes, and that's causing sort of this expansiveness of what might work in all different fields. And what I see really is kind of like long-term the... Uh, confluence of what you do and what I do, science and spirituality, right? That that what currently can't be measured will gradually maybe start to be able to be measured and we'll be able to figure out why, why chakra work works in the way that it does and what it's doing and what is the connection. We'll be able to measure energies we can't right now. That may or may not be like the next few years. That's probably further out, but that's that's kind of where I see us heading. And then we have a reimagining of what what science is, what spirituality is, it becomes much more expansive as whereas now we have this artificial sort of one or the other. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say it's artificial, but it's, you know, kind of religion, re science, the, the, the age of enlightenment, right? Science versus religion, which I don't think is really true. Um, in my personal work, yeah, I think uh, I just love continuing to explore ways to make these kinds of things more accessible, but also grounded because I do recognize within the new age movement, there is a lot of stuff that's very helpful to people, but there's a lot of stuff also that can get ungrounded, can become spiritual bypassing, can become fantasies and storytelling. And I'm not comfortable with that. So it's like, how do you create tools that are drawing on ancient wisdom, but that aren't uh, just kind of feeding a completely imaginary fantasy narrative, which isn't helpful to anyone. So that's kind of where I see my work going, trying to just what works, what helps people, you know, what helps them change. And do you see like psychedelic experiences having any sort of intersection in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever work with it, but certainly I'm very fascinated by what's going on, especially the research into depression and the potential there. And I hope that work continues and, you know, we really get somewhere with it. Um, so I'm excited about it. I don't know if it's ever something I'll work with, but I think there's real potential there. Mm -hmm. I bring it up because I feel like it's something that uh, just in terms of what we had talked about with like the mindfulness and, and kind of feeling into those like felt sensations where like sometimes I think those um, some of those psychedelic substances can help people kind of directly access those states that might otherwise be pretty foreign or, or difficult for them to access in a more sober environment. 
Exactly. It frees us up, right? Opens up parts of our awareness. And some traditions have known that forever, right? And they've been part of uh, visioning and personal growth ceremonies in different forms. And I think the challenge, as with all of these tools, is using them responsibly, right? Right now, we have some people using them responsibly, some people, from what I've heard, not using them responsibly. We have some, some uh, you know, some stories that aren't so healthy in terms of the way that they've been used. So it's really about honing in on what works and programs that use them in a responsible way. Of course. Agreed. Well, Lisa, it was a real pleasure um, having this conversation with you today. If people want to uh, find out more about your work or connect with you, um, where would you direct them to? My website is enlightenedenergetics.com. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram as Chakra Empowerment or Enlightened Energetics. You'll find it either way. And my books are Chakra Empowerment for Women or The Art and Science of Meditation depending on what your interests are. They're both available at Amazon and, and other places. Great. Well, we will put links to all of those um, resources in the show description for you guys to find. And uh, for those of you guys who enjoyed listening to the episode today, go ahead and like and subscribe to the podcast. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, pretty much all the major podcast platforms. Uh, if you do really enjoy the show, I'd love it if you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts for the NeuroFlex podcast. Um, also, you can check out the YouTube channel. Uh, NeuroFlex podcast is the name of the channel. And we'll post all of the video uh, episodes along with clips on that channel as well. So uh, Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed uh, having you on the show. Thank you. It's been my pleasure and good luck with the new name. <laughs> awesome. Will do. Thanks.